Ezekiel chapter 8 in your Bibles, please. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 8. The message will be similar in format to this morning. I believe that the Old Testament actually is more conducive to perhaps this style of preaching than even the New Testament is. We're going to cover four chapters of Scripture tonight. Your pastor, who preached an entire message on three verses last Sunday morning and five verses this morning, is going to cover four chapters of Scripture in one night, Lord willing. So let's just get busy, get right into it. In Ezekiel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in mine house, and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell there upon me. Ezekiel is speaking, and he says that it's the sixth year, the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month. Now, if you have that outline that I gave you, or if you have been keeping track in any way, shape, or form to the dates, what we understand is that this is one year and two months after the previous vision. Do you remember the previous vision? Remind, let's, let's think back together and remember all of the vision and all of the things that God had told Ezekiel to do. You recall that God told Ezekiel to build a tile and to, to put Jerusalem on that tile and to put the pan between him and Jerusalem and to lay on his left side and then to lay on his right side and to cut his hair and his beard and to take all of that hair and to divide it into thirds and to burn a part of it and to scatter a part of it to the wind and then to chop the other part of it with a knife and then to take a little bit of that third part and to hide it in his skirt. Hide it, that remnant. And then finally to take that, that, that last little bit and to burn it as well. The, the fire of God's chastening that would chasten the remnant back to Himself. And you recall all of that that He was asked to do. And He, remember, eating the, the terrible, nasty bread for all of those days. Well, we recall that that would have taken him to about 430 days in total, which is a lot of days. And as we look at that, what we find is that if you take that 430 days, it's about one year and two months. So if we understand this properly, Ezekiel has given this, this charge to do all of those things. And one year and two months later, almost, exactly the day that he's getting up off his back and he's like, oh, I've been lying on my side for 430 days and I've been eating this terrible bread and he's thinking about steak dinner and he's thinking about how he'd love to just just be able to walk around again and here comes the next communication of God to him and through him. The sixth year, the sixth month, the fifth day of the month, he's sitting in his house and the elders of Judah are sitting before him. He's sitting there and the elders have come to him. Why have they come to him? We don't know why they've come to him. Have they come to him to ask him questions? Well, he can't open his mouth unless the Lord's speaking. Have they come to inquire of the Lord? What, what's going on here? We really don't know. But they're sitting before him and he says, the hand of the Lord God, God in all caps, that means that it is the name Jehovah, the Lord Jehovah, the, the hand of God fell on him there. He says, then I beheld, and lo, a likeness as the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his loins even downward, fire, and from his loins even upward as the appearance of brightness as the color 
of amber. And he put forth the form of an hand and took me by the lock of mine head. And the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem. Can you imagine the scene? Now he's seeing this in a vision. He's sitting there before the elders in Jerusalem and all of a sudden the hand of God falls upon him. He begins to see a vision and this hand reaches down, grabs him by the hair and yanks him up and carries him from Babylon all the way across the desert and he sets him down in Jerusalem. What a way to start a vision. And remember, his hair would have grown back by then. It's a year later, so he's got hair. And what Ezekiel sees when he's brought to Jerusalem is going to startle him, to say the least. Look with me as we continue in verse 3. It says that he was brought to Jerusalem to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there according to the vision that I saw in the plain. Do you remember the vision he saw in the plain? This would have been the first vision, his commission. He is in the plains of Chebar and all of a sudden the heavens open and he sees the, surf, the, the cherry beam and he sees the wheels within the wheels and he sees the flaming fire and he sees all of these things below the firmament and the wheels are moving and the cherry beam are moving and the, the, we, the, the, the ball is moving between them all and the, the eyes and, and all of the things that he saw. He says, I saw it again as I walked to Jerusalem. But he, he said that as he went there, he saw something in the door of the inner gate. This is a chart of Solomon's temple. At this time, it would have been Solomon's temple that would have been built. Here's Solomon's temple. Here's the eastern gate. The temple, this is the complex. Here's the temple proper. We have the eastern gate. And so, so the temple is facing east as God had called the temple to do. And what does Ezekiel say here in verse 3? It says that he was brought to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north. And so that north gate there on, in the temple complex is where Ezekiel was brought. And God took him by the locks of his hair and He set him down in a vision by this gate. And He says, what I saw there was an image of jealousy, an idol. An idol sitting in the gate of the temple of God. Can you believe it? Ezekiel couldn't believe it. He was, he was preparing for the priesthood, you remember. It's been six years now that he's been by the, by the river near Babylon. And he's brought back in a vision and what is sitting in the gate to the temple of Jehovah God but a false god, an idol, sitting right there in the temple. Verse 5, then said he unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now the way toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. He said furthermore unto me, and this is the theme with which these next four chapters are going to roll. Son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary. Ezekiel, I am about to do something dramatic. I'm about to leave my own temple. I'm about to depart from my people. Do you want to know why? 
Look at that image of jealousy sitting in the gate. It doesn't end there though. In verses 7 through 12, God takes him to the door of the court. And he says, Ezekiel, look at that hole in the wall. Dig into that hole. And so Ezekiel goes to that court and he sees a hole and he digs through that hole. And as he's digging and as he's digging, he comes to a door. God says, go in the door. He opens the door and what does he find? God says in verse 9, go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in verse 10 and saw and behold every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed on the walls round about. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Here they are in the court of God, but in a hole in the wall, behind a closed door, are 70 men, representatives of Israel, including Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan, Shaphan was a scribe. We're going to talk about him next week. Tuck the name of Shaphan back into the back of your mind because we're going to come back to him. He was a godly man. And the scriptures say, you may even want to do a little bit of study. Who was Shaphan the scribe? Do a little study this week. Find out who he was. We'll talk about him. Ezekiel goes in and he sees this man, Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan, among 69 other men of Israel, leaders in Israel, having scrawled false gods all over the walls, burning incense to false gods. Couldn't get much worse, could it? The abomination. Look with verse 12. Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man, chapter 8, every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say, and this is why, for they say, the Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. God doesn't care about the earth. God, He's the great clockwinder. He wound us up and He got us going, but He's not active. He doesn't care. He doesn't see. He doesn't know. Just like their false gods that they were worshiping, that they had scrawled upon the walls, that they had erected at the north gate, they say, the God of the Bible doesn't see. The God of the Bible doesn't know. Notice verse 13. God then says to Ezekiel, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. Ezekiel has seen the image erected in the gate. He has seen the ancients of Israel hiding in the temple complex, worshiping God. He says it gets worse, Ezekiel. It gets worse. Let's move a little bit closer to the house of God. And so he moves to that inner gate still facing north. It says in verse 14, Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat a woman weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was a false god known by many names throughout history. This god was known as Astarte in Babylon, was known as Adonis in Greece, was known as Osiris, in Egypt, a false god by many names. The myth goes that Tammuz was a beautiful shepherd 
that at some point in his life was slain by a wild boar. This wild boar was to be symbolic of winter. Tammuz was to be symbolic of the spring, of, of, of life, of all of those elements of, of life that come with spring and summer and rain and, and harvest and, and um, plenty. Well, Tammuz had a wife. Her name was Ishtar. If the name Ishtar sounds familiar to you, it's, it's where we get the word Easter from, actually. Her name was Ishtar. She was the goddess of fertility. And the legend goes that when Tammuz, this beautiful shepherd, was slain by the wild boar, that his wife Ishtar mourned for him and declared that, or she, she, she declared that she would rescue him and she descended to the underworld to deliver him from death. And so as the cycle every year happens, as winter comes upon them, they recognize that the wild boar has again slain Tammuz. And they weep for Tammuz like Ishtar wept for Tammuz, hoping again that the gods would restore Tammuz and allow spring to come again. Pagan, false worship in their desire for these false gods to bring them prosperity and life and harvest and plenty. Cultures throughout the centuries have celebrated the weeping of Ishtar for Tammuz to usher in winter yearly with pagan rituals. Those rituals usually had a great deal of wickedness, lewdness, immorality. Pagan religions from Egypt to Babylon to Greece to Rome, they, they all worshipped Tammuz and Ishtar. Can you see why as a woman is in the gate to this inner court, weeping for Tammuz, God would say, Ezekiel, do you see the abomination people? She is in the inner court of God, weeping for a false God who just died. But it gets worse. God says, Ezekiel, I'm not quite through yet. Verse 15, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And it says, And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they worshiped the sun toward the east. I get chills down my spine when I think of it. Here they are in the very court of God, between the gate and the altar, the brazen altar, the altar that was supposed to have the lamb slain on it that would, that would cover their sin. And they have not turned toward the temple of God, worshiping the God of heaven, they have turned their backs to God. And in the very face of the temple of God are on their knees worshiping the sun that rises in the east 
and sets in the west. God says, do you see the abominations of my people? Remember what he said in verse 6, that I should go far off from my sanctuary. Verse 17, then he said unto me, hast thou seen this, O son of man? It is a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here. It's not even a big deal to them. They say, what's the big deal that I turn my back on God and I'm worshiping the Son? As long as I give God some acknowledgement, then what does it matter if I've got an idol sitting right in His gate? God says, do you see the abominations of My people? In chapter 9, we see God make a declaration. Look in verse 1. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. Six men depart from the temple, presumably angelic beings, beings that are in charge of the the city of Jerusalem. And these six men have swords in their hands. Then there's a seventh man that comes. This man's not a warrior. He doesn't have a sword at least. He comes with an inkhorn. He comes with a writing implement and a tablet in his hand. He's dressed in linen. And God says this, Man with the inkhorn, go throughout all Israel and mark the foreheads of all them that worship these false gods. And then men with the swords, go through Jerusalem, killing them all. Man, woman, and child. But something else happens in this chapter. Notice verse 3. It says, And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house. The glory of the Lord lifted off of the temple, the cherubs, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and moved away. And so this chapter shows these men, these six men, going through Judah and Jerusalem and destroying all of those who were not faithful to God. And notice what Ezekiel says in verse 8. He says, Ah, Lord God, wilt Thou destroy all the residue of Israel in Thy pouring out of Thy fury upon Jerusalem? Then He said unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great, and the land is full of blood, and the city full of perverseness. For they say, The Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord seeth not. He says, My eye will not spare. The man with the inkhorn comes back to God and says, God, I've done it all. I have marked the foreheads of every man. Now recall, this is indeed in a vision. Chapter 10. In chapter 10, we see the continuation of the glory of the Lord departing from Israel. Look with me beginning in verse 1. Then I looked and behold, the firmament that was above the head of the cherubims there appeared over them as it were a sapphire stone as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And he spake unto the man clothed with linen and said, Go in between the wheels, even under the cherub, 
and fill thine hand with coals of fire from between the cherry beams and scatter them over the city. And he went in in my sight. Now the cherry beams stood on the right hand of the house uh, when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house and the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the Lord's glory. God tells the cherub to go in and to take fires from off the, uh, from between the cherubims, from off of the mercy seat. But we also see the glory of the Lord begin to move. It moved from the Holy of Holies and it moved its way toward the threshold of the temple. It's leaving its temple. God is leaving His temple. Ezekiel spends the rest of this chapter describing these cherry beam again. You recall from chapter 1 what he saw. At the time, he didn't call them cherry beam. He just called them uh, beasts with four heads and uh, four wings and uh, bodies like man and and uh, feet like hind's feet or calves feet. And here is where we first see them called cherry beam. And so he describes them. He describes the wheels and the wheels again. He describes the glory of the Lord again. We've talked about that. If you don't recall, I encourage you to go back and listen to to chapter 1 and you can get a good idea of what is going on here. But what we do know is that these cherry beam, that this glory, that the wheels and the wheels, that the enfolding fire, it all followed the glory of the Lord. It all accompanied the glory of the Lord. brings us to chapter 11. As we get to chapter 11, the glory of the Lord has moved again. Actually, let's go back to chapter 10, verse 18. It says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherry beams. And the cherry beams lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels also were beside them, and everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. This is the living creature that I saw under the God of, of Israel by the river Chebar, and I knew that they were the cherry beams. Everyone had four faces apiece, everyone had four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under the wings, and the likeness of their faces was the same faces which I saw by the river Chebar their appearances and themselves. They went, everyone, straight forward. We see here the Spirit of the Lord move one more time before chapter 11 to the eastern gate. The Spirit of the Lord has gone out from the holiest of holies and went to the threshold. As Ezekiel's watching, the angels usher the Spirit of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, from the threshold to the eastern gate. Right on the edge of the temple complex, right on the edge of the eastern edge of Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord is now at the eastern gate. In chapter 11, we see at this eastern gate 25 men. Among them, Jeazaniah, the son of Adzer, a different Jeazaniah, and a man named Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah. Ezekiel says that these were princes of the people. And as he is at this eastern gate, God tells the Son of Man, Ezekiel, to prophesy to these 
men, these 25 men that are at the eastern gate. Notice what he says. Son of man, verse 2, these are the men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel in the city, which say, it is not near, let us build houses. The city is a cauldron and we be the flesh. Here's the thing. These 25 men, these princes in Israel, these leaders in Israel, were going to Israel and they were saying, don't worry, the end is not near. God's judgment is not near. Build houses, start a life, have children. We are flesh and the city's a cauldron. The city's a pot and we're meat in the pot. We're safe. We're just going to seethe until we're done. We're, we're going to be just fine here. Don't worry about it. Just eat, drink, and be merry. It kind of sounds like uh, some modern-day economists, right? Don't worry about the economy. Just keep spending money. Just keep building your houses. There's no bubble. It's not going to collapse. We're just fine. It's kind of what these guys were saying here. Don't worry about it. They're, Jeremiah spouting judgment. Ezekiel spouting judgment. But don't you worry. It's all going to be just fine. Just carry on as usual. Life as usual. Well, God says, I have some words to say to them. Look at verse 4. Therefore, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said unto me, Speak, thus saith the Lord. Thus have ye said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. Ye have multiplied your slain in this city, and ye have filled the streets thereof with the slain. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, your slain, whom ye have laid in the midst of it, they are the flesh. And this city is the cauldron, but I will bring you forth out of the midst of it. Yeah, the dead people in the city, they're safe. They get to stay in the city. They get to stay in the cauldron. They're the flesh, the dead people. But the rest of you, no. I'm going to bring you out. You're not safe. You, you are not going to find security in this city anymore. He says, I will bring you out of the midst thereof. I will deliver you into the hand of strangers and will execute judgments among you. Ye shall fall by the sword. I will judge you in the borders of Israel and ye shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, neither shall ye be the flesh in the midst thereof. But I will judge you in the border of Israel and ye shall know that I am the Lord. For ye have not walked in my statutes, neither executed my judgments, but have done after the manners of the heathen that are round about you. Ezekiel is called to prophesy. To prophesy that their words of encouragement and of optimism are misfounded. And notice what happens in verse 13. And it came to pass when I prophesied that Pelatiah the son of Benaiah died. As Ezekiel prophesied in this vision, this prince of Israel just fell down and died. And Ezekiel is distraught. It says, Then I fell down upon my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, wilt thou make a full end of the remnant? Here he's seen the inkhorn, the angel going through with an inkhorn marking foreheads. He's seen these angels going behind him, slaying with the sword. He says, God, will you make a full end of, it, of the remnant of Israel? Then he sees these 25 men that are telling Israel, it's okay, don't worry about this. God's not judging you. Build houses. And as Ezekiel is prophesying against what they are telling the nation, Pelatiah just drops dead. And Ezekiel is, oh Lord God, are you just going to kill everybody? Is everybody going to die right here? But that's... That's not the case. God answers Ezekiel's questions in verse 14. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, thy brethren, even thy brethren, the men of thy kindred, and all the house of Israel, holy are they unto whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get you far from the Lord, 
Unto us is the land given in possession. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. Therefore say, Thus saith the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. What? It's probably the most beautiful although in the entire Bible. Although I will scatter you. Although you will face judgment, yet will I be to you a sanctuary. Yet to that remnant that I send out that I don't destroy, that remnant, that hair that I hid in my skirt, it's not that, that it's, it's going to be easy for them. Difficult days are coming for them. But they are going to have a sanctuary in me among the people. Finally, in verses 22 through 25, it says, Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them above. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain, which is in the east side of the city. The glory of the Lord moves from the eastern gate and rests upon the Mount of Olives. And then it says from there, afterwards, the Spirit took me up and brought me in the vision of the Spirit of God into Chaldea to them of the captivity. So the vision that I had seen went up from me. As the glory of the Lord is There, on the Mount of Olives, the Scriptures say it then departs into heaven. If that kind of rings a bell with you, Jesus Christ did the same thing. Jesus Christ is coming again to the Mount of Olives. He went up from the Mount of Olives. He's coming down again on the Mount of Olives. And what we will find way forward in Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel 38, 39 actually, is the glory of the Lord. Come down again. When do you think he's going to come down? We'll get there. Or you can look it up this week. The glory of the Lord departs from the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel sees it in a vision and then he's brought back to sitting in front of these leaders in Judah. Well, that's four chapters of Scripture that we've summarized this evening. Let's take some time to apply. Three ways that we're going to apply this lesson this evening. Number one, we learn that you can't hide sin from God. Can't hide sin from God. Number two, we're going to learn that sin will strip you of God's richest blessings for you. And number three, we're going to learn that though you can't hide sin from God and though sin, if you get into it, will strip you from God's richest blessings, there is always hope and restoration possible with God. Let's look at it together can't hide sin from God. As we consider the 70 ancients, you remember Ezekiel digs the hole and he gets to the door and he goes in and he sees the 70 ancients burning incense, having creeping things and false gods scrawled all over the walls of this dark inner sanctuary of false worship in the temple of God. You recall in chapter 8 verse 12, the reason why they were doing this is as follows. The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. Surely God doesn't see me. Surely we are, we are in a hole in the ground behind a door in the darkness burning incense to false gods. Surely God doesn't see me. 
But you know, that's not what the Scriptures tell us. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12 tell us this. We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. You know, God sees what you do in the darkness just as well as he sees what you do in the light. God knows what you do in the secret places just as well as he knows what you do in the open places. There is no light and darkness to God. There's no concealed place from God. Jonah tried that once, didn't he? God says, go to Nineveh, and the scriptures say that Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with that, Jonah. You flee from the presence of the Lord. You just do that. Didn't work. The psalmist David says, Whither shall I go? Where shall I go from thy presence? Whither shall I flee? If I go as high as I can into the heavens, you're there. If I go as low as I can into the depths of hell, you are there. If I go to the wings of the morning, all the way as far east as I can go, you're there. If I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, that would have been the Mediterranean at the time, as far west as I can go, you're there. Darkness and light are the same to you. Psalm 44 verse 21 Shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. They claim to be worshiping God, but these 70 men, their hearts were far from him. And God knows what's in their hearts. It's easy to wonder sometimes, what were these people thinking? Why did these people think they could get away from God? Why did these people think that they could do these things and God would not see them? Why do we do it? Why do we do it? Why do we think? Isn't that what we think? You say, no, I don't think that. Isn't that what your actions tell you you think? Isn't that what your actions tell you your heart is saying? Either God doesn't see me, or, number two, God has forsaken the earth, right? Either he doesn't see you, or he's not going to give you the consequences of your actions. Those are the only two ways that you can convince yourself that your sin is okay. Either... God does see it and he doesn't care or God doesn't see it at all. Both are pretty foolish, aren't they? The God that knows the hearts, the God that sees in darkness, he sees, he knows. Saw, uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus Christ says to the Pharisees, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. You can, you can look good before men. Jazaniah, Pelatiah, these men were leaders in Israel. Did anybody know? Did anybody know that they had dug a hole in the ground and were worshiping, burning incense to false gods? I don't know if anyone knew. Ezekiel sure didn't know. He was taken aback. What abominations. They could fool Ezekiel. They perhaps could fool Jerusalem. Perhaps they could even fool the priesthood that wasn't involved. But they weren't going to fool God. God saw. God knew. And we're not fooling God either. 
We can fool our church. We can fool our family. But we won't fool God. Matthew chapter 23 verses 25 and 26. Jesus Christ again speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Isn't that nasty? Have you ever gone to get a cup out of your cupboard? When my wife and I lived in Florida, we, we still hadn't really gotten to the habit of turning our cups upside down. And we'd go to get teacups in the morning. And every once in a while, you pull one of those things out and it's clean. It looks good on the outside, but you always look in that cup first. And you'd find some roach pellets. You wouldn't want to be drinking that. Or you'd find a cockroach itself that decided to, to nest in your, in your cup for the, for the evening. Roasty kind of. Nice place to stay, I guess. You always look in the cup. You can't judge a cup by the outside, can you? The outside really doesn't matter. But the inside does. God said, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, your outside looks great, but the part that matters, the part you drink out of, is nasty. It's, it's corroded. It's awful. Clean the inside of the cup and the outside will work itself out. We can go through the religious motions. We can seek external favor. We can impress others by doing outward acts of Christian piety. But none of it will bear any spiritual fruit if it's not done with a heart of sincere and humble obedience to God. Consider 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. You've probably heard this verse before. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. This verse is used and abused in Christianity all the time. Used and abused. It's often used by carnal Christians in an attempt to prove why their carnal actions should not be counted as a true reflection of their heart. Yeah, I do that, but God knows my heart, right? God, God told Samuel that man looketh on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. He knows my heart. So, so yeah, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that, but God sees my heart. But you know, it works both ways. Just as a person's actions are not always a definitive reflection of their heart, so too a person's actions in the positive sense. His negative actions, his carnal actions, doesn't always reflect his heart. Well, his pious actions don't always reflect his heart either. Man see at the outward appearance. You see a man standing before you in a suit got my pens in my pocket, my hair is brushed, it took me a long time to towel brush my hair today, my glasses are actually kind of clean right now, that's, that's not always the case, my shoes aren't looking all that shiny, but I blame it on the snow. You look at the outward appearance of a man and you see something. And just as if I were to come in in holy jeans and and hair all over the place and whatever, and, and I say, well, don't judge me. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So too, I stand before you in my suit with my pens and my slick hair, and I say, don't judge me. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. 
Don't think I'm a godly man just because I wear a suit to church. Don't think I'm an ungodly man just because I wear holy jeans to church. Sure. God knows our heart. God knows if our heart is right. God knows if our heart is full of sin. We don't fool God. Now, I'm not saying you should wear holy jeans to church. Please don't take my point wrong. But you can't hide sin from God because God knows your heart. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Micah asks a question. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He answers the question. Now He has showed thee, O man, what is good? What doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. God wants your heart. He doesn't just want your actions. He wants your heart. And let me tell you why he wants you to be right with him. He wants you to be right with him so he can bless you. He wants you to have a right heart with him. He wants what you do in the darkness. He wants what you do in the secret places to be right. Just as right as what you do at church. He wants your actions at home, your actions in your car, your actions on the computer, your actions in front of the television, your actions at at the grocery um, market, your actions wherever you go. He wants them to be just as good as anywhere else. He wants your heart so He can bless you. So you can't hide sin from God. Second, this evening, sin will strip you of God's richest blessings. God wants to bless you and sin will strip you of it. The spiritual blessings of God are dependent upon the spiritual obedience of man. Now, we know we have the eternal blessings. We are blessed in Christ through salvation. Those are not dependent upon our actions. We know that. But the spiritual blessings, those things that are built on top of salvation, come through obedience. Little did Israel consider the cost of the pleasures of their sin for a season. Little did Israel consider that because of their sin, God was going to allow this city to be destroyed and God was going to remove His presence from among them. God so desperately wanted to bless His people, but He could not because they were in sin. Isaiah 59 says this, God says, Behold, the, hand, the, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear you. This concept has not changed today. May I, may I just mention, we are not under the law. We are not obligated to a physical law, just as God is not obligated to give us physical blessings. But this principle still stands. Consider with me Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. Paul is giving an example here of men that we ought to follow. As Troy prayed tonight, the men who have gone before us. And he said this, By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward by faith he forsook Egypt 
not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This is faith. Faith is one who sees that which God has promised, even at the expense of what he sees with his own eyes. Faith is one who sees God's promised blessings behind the physical sacrifices that God would call us to make in this life. Faith sees the promise of spiritual blessings in the heavenlies as more real than the promise of pleasure from sin. You step into sin and you get a momentary pleasure. There is a pleasure that comes from that sin for a moment. There's a pleasure that comes for a short time. But God says if you will just see with the eyes of faith, then what you will see is if you will give up those momentary pleasures, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, if you'll give up those moments of, of sinful pleasure, you will have eternal blessings. And faith sees and says, eternity versus a moment. Eternity of blessings Moment of pleasure. Right? Eternity outweighs the moment every time. But, why don't we then always do it? Ezekiel 8 verse 12. The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. Our faith falters. We begin to see with these eyes. Instead of seeing with these eyes. Our faith falters. Paul would say, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's coming? Praise the Lord. Can't hide sin from God. Sin will strip you of God's richest blessings. Third and finally, and this is, this is the, the exciting point. There's always hope and restoration possible with God. You say, Pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm past the point of no return. I've already crossed that point. I'm already over that edge. No, you're not. You're not. In Ezekiel chapter 11, God promised His people that there is hope. God promised His people that He would bring them back again. We read uh, in verse 17, And I will give you the land of Israel. He said this in verse 19, And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them an heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my ordinances, and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. God promised here, a promise that He also gave in Jeremiah 31, a promise that was referenced tonight in our Hebrews 10 passage. It's called the New Covenant. The day where God would abolish the covenant that is found in the Mosaic law and would give them a new covenant, an enduring covenant, a covenant found through not the sacrifice of blood and of goats and of, and of sheep, but the sacrifice of the blood of the only begotten Son of God. God says, I'll give you a new heart. And through this new heart, you will be capable of walking in my statutes. You will be capable of keeping my ordinances. You will be capable of full obedience to me this promised new covenant came about 2,000 years ago in the form of a baby lying in a manger we're about to recognize his birth in just a couple of weeks now we know from scripture that Israel has not yet received this promise have they God has not given them back the land God has not 
saved Israel. He has not given them that new heart that He has promised to them. But there's coming a day that Zechariah 12.10 says, All Israel shall look upon Him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for for the one whom they have pierced. They will repent. They will return. And so Paul says with confidence... In Romans chapters 11, verses 25 through 27, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sin. The promised covenant that God promises here in Ezekiel is the one that God promises in Jeremiah, is the one that God promises all throughout the Old Testament, and it is the promise that Paul says is still being enacted, is still to come to pass through Jesus Christ one day. It's happening. There's hope for Israel that God has given in the text, and you know what? There's hope for us as well. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, God sees... Our sin. He does. He sees our sin. Our, that our sin strips from us God's blessings. He desires to bless us. He desires to use us. And He can't always do it because we're not in a place to be usable by Him. But if we confess our sins, the Scriptures say He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's hope. There's hope. There's hope for the believer in confession. There's hope for the unbeliever in salvation. There's hope for Israel in the covenant of the last days when they look upon Him whom they have pierced. As we consider these points this evening, consider what Ezekiel saw in that vision on that day, one year and two months after his first vision, as he sees the abominations in Jerusalem. As he sees the people of Jerusalem slain, as he sees the leaders in Jerusalem fall dead before him. And he says, God, are you just going to let the entire remnant die? And God says, no, I won't. There's hope. There's hope in me. As we close this evening, I don't know your heart. You... Do what you do, you look how you look, you say what you say, you act how you act. By God's grace, we know each other pretty well. But you don't know what's in my heart any better than I know what's in your heart. But you know what's in your heart. And God knows what's in your heart. May I beg you and plead with you to not be a Christian whose cup is pretty on the outside and a mess on the inside. May I beg you and plead with you to be on the outside what you are on the inside and to be on the inside what God wants you to be. This Christian life, the time that we're here, it's so short. Moses asked God in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Young people, your days are short. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon said that the days of youth are vanity. He, t- he tells the young people, do what you want with your time. While you're young, you've got the strength, you've got the ability, live free, enjoy, but, but remember this, 
as you're doing that, God's going to bring everything in judgment. And that's when he said, you know what? The days of youth are vanity, so serve God in the days of your youth. Because he's going to bring it into judgment. Those of you that aren't youth anymore. It's not too late. It's not too late for you to do right. It's not too late for you to start doing wrong either. What's on the inside is what matters. Let's make sure the inside of the cup is clean. And you know, what's on the inside will come out. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You want to clean up the outside of the cup? Well, just clean up the inside of the cup. The outside will take care of itself. Wish dishes were that way. Let's close with prayer. Father, you know our hearts. I don't know the hearts of the people in this room. I know them. I love them. I know that the men and the women in this room love you. I know that. But Father, sometimes our love for the world overrides our love for you. And I pray for those in this room this evening. I pray that you would help each one of us, myself included, to be men and women whose inside, whose heart is right with you. Help us never to forget that you see our sin. It's not just the sins that we commit, but the sins of our heart. You know the anger that we have in our heart toward a brother that is just as bad as murder. You know the lust in our heart for that woman that's just as bad as adultery you know that desire in our heart that is indeed covetousness whether we buy the thing or not father help us not to be satisfied to appease people on the outside help us to be right with you on the inside help our hearts to be right with you you have made every provision through your son jesus christ for us to be right with you help us to be it oh god May we learn a lesson from Ezekiel's vision this evening that you see and you know, that you desire to bless us, but our sin strips us of those blessings and that there's always hope with you. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.